At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. I gotta say, it makes the grossest sound into a microphone. In my ears, it sounds like you're walking through the worst kind of swamp right now. Isn't there something about like the process of cooking and whether it's appealing, whether or not you'll like the dish? Microwave it on high power until cooked through 15 seconds. I think maybe this is gonna be a gloriously looking meatloaf, but at this point, it's looking pretty brown. This is Burnt Toast, a podcast from Food 52 about what doesn't necessarily make it on the website. I'm Kenzie Wilbur. Tiny cooked meat smudge. Brown and oozing. <laughs> you just heard me and my coworker, Ali Slagle, making the meatloaf recipe from Kenji Lopez Alt's latest book, The Food Lab. Why meatloaf? Because as you'll soon learn, it's perfectly representative of Kenji's watermark on the food world. He takes what we think of as simple recipes, the dishes we grew up on, and he takes them apart, makes them better, and then he puts them back together again. And he's tireless. Right before I, I left for book tour, I was doing a bunch of stuff. Um, I'm, I have a recipe for chicken paprikash that I'm doing right oh now. Oh, my gosh. Um, because fall is coming up, and I haven't done that yet. That's um, one of my favorite things. did that. I'm working on a homemade chicken McNugget recipe. Um, what else am I doing right now? Uh, I mean, we're starting, like, Thanksgiving cycle stuff. Sure, sure. Uh, um, any more churpumples in the works? <laughs> Do you remember no, that? No, yes, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in case you weren't around for it, the churpumple is the reason I like to think that Kenji and I go way back. In 2012, former Food 52 editor Nazli Samadzadeh had the idea to challenge Kenji to a churpumple off, the dessert course's answer to a turducken. It's a cherry, a pumpkin, and an apple pie all baked into cakes that are then layered into a teetering, massive sugar tower. Kenji's entry? He went savory, and he called it the Sir Plumple. A sweet potato pie, a green bean casserole, and a chicken pot pie, all double-wrapped in crusts of pie dough. I was an intern at that time. Right, right, right. He has no idea. So actually, paprikash is probably a really good place to start because I think of chicken paprikash as being a totally heirloom grandma recipe where right. you have four ingredients and you make these sort of just like super simple flour, right. water, nothing dumplings. Right. And you dump egg it and in wa- and you're and done. Flour, yeah. yeah. What did you think needed to be improved upon? The recipes aren't always necessarily about what needs to be improved upon. I mean, I guess in this case, there there, there are some improvements. Made. But, you know, when I, when I start researching a recipe, it's always um, it's always uh, research on the history and sort of traditions of the recipe first, um, because I want to make sure that wherever I end up is going to be something that people immediately recognize and, and is comforting in the way that the dish is supposed to be. I mean, particularly for like a dish like 
paprikash. I think people grow up and it, and it is like their grandmother's recipe. Um, and so, you know, research for that one involved, um, it, well, it, it involved looking at a lot of uh, cookbooks and, and magazines. Um, but it also involved like watching a lot of YouTube videos of like people filming their Hungarian grandmother who mm-hmm. doesn't speak English mm-hmm. making her version of paprikash. Um, um, as well as, you know, everything from like traditional recipes all the way to like um, what people, you know, Americanized versions of it. Like, so there are some recipes that are like poached shredded chicken breast that, that goes into like chicken broth with paprika um, and a ton of sour cream. Whereas like more traditional recipes are usually like whole chicken pieces that are mm-hmm. kind of braised in a paprika-y sauce um, and just maybe finished with a little bit of sour cream. You know, and research also involves doing a lot of social media stuff. So like I think I have like a number of tweets about chicken paprikash asking people like what they like to serve it with or like what their what their recipes involved or what what chicken parts they use. So, I mean, as far as as far as improving it goes, like this recipe, I, I, I'm looking at it in a similar way that I looked at. I did like a recipe for beef, beef stroganoff. And in that one, it was part of it was sort of taking it back to its its roots, because I think beef stroganoff became like sort of like a sour cream and beef stew, whereas the original dish is really like a, a quick cooking thing. It's a it's beef tenderloin that's cooked quickly and in a, in a creamy sauce. And so a lot of it was sort of taking it back to that and then also just kind of optimizing flavors by doing little tweaks here and there. So the chicken paprikash recipe, a lot of it is about how you find the right paprika and how you treat that paprika to pull the most flavor out of it, as well as how you make sort of a really intensely chickeny and paprika flavored sauce without just like kind of drowning everything in sour sure. cream. That's interesting what you said about taking it back to where it was before, mm-hmm. because I think when when we think about what your work with the food lab and mm-hmm. and this book is that you're applying science in this way to recipes that sort of make them almost you know make them crazier you add gelatin to your meatloaf instead of veal but actually you're taking an heirloom recipe back to sort of more of its original form it's not that different from what i typically do in food lab because um you know the the food lab recipes they're always the, the point the place where you end up like when when you when you serve someone like the meatloaf from the food lab book for example um there are some weird ingredients that go into it there's there's gelatin there's marmite you grind your own meat you, you do all these things but it doesn't you know when you when you have that meatloaf in front of you it's not like oh this is like some wacky futuristic meatloaf. It, it's just, it looks like meatloaf and it tastes like meatloaf. Um, but the idea is just to sort of enhance um, and optimize all the qualities that of like meatloafiness that people look for in a meatloaf. You know, in in the case of uh, the paprikash, it's about trying to get a sauce that has like a cleaner flavor to it. Um, sure. And that really optimizes the, the ingredients that you're working with, um, especially because, you know, paprikash is like super, super simple. It's just, it's, it's chicken, onions, Hungarian paprika, and then, and that's basically it. And then a little sour cream to finish it. Four ingredients, um, as you said before. And, you you know, when the, generally the fewer the ingredients you have, the more technique matters. Um, and you know, and and applying science and and learning the techniques is how you really get the most out of those ingredients. Mm-hmm. Is there a recipe that you remember having tested, you know, the the most number of times? I think your chocolate chip cookie piece is one of the iconic Food Lab pieces right. that I think of, <laughs> and, and it opens with with just a line from your wife saying. Really another batch? Yeah, like no more cookies. No more cookies. Here's what we mean by iconic food lab. In the process of the chocolate chip cookie article, Kenji didn't sleep until he figured out how to make the perfect version. Really. In the post, he details waking up in the middle of the night with new ideas and searching for a convenience store that would sell him flour at 3 a.m. He did figure it out, but it took 32 pounds of flour, over 100 individual tests, and 1,536 cookies. Do you have a white whale recipe? Do you have something that you still haven't mastered or that you're sort of like holding out yeah, there? Yeah, there's there's a couple. Um, so I've done a lot of recipes for ramen broth and mm-hmm. for like ramen toppings and accompaniments. I've mm-hmm. never done a ramen noodle recipe um, because 
Uh, I've never made ramen noodles at home that I thought were as good as ramen noodles that I can just buy from like a good ramen noodle company. Mm-hmm. Um, and and not only that, but I haven't um, even the way I do it at home. Like I've, it, it's one of those recipes that I feel like takes more practice and um, and skill than the, like it's not the kind of recipe where I can just say here are the ingredients, put them together, you're going to get great results because um, because you don't. It takes it takes practice. And so you know I I, I do try and always make my recipes. Um, foolproof in, in the sense that you can be happy with the results the first time you make them. Um, you know, obviously a lot of them are going to get better and better the more you make them. But this is one of those recipes where it's like, you know, I have this recipe and if I give it to someone, they're going to make it and they're not going to be happy with the results because it's not going to taste very good. It's not sure. going to taste as good as what you can buy. Is it tough sometimes to stand up to dissenters of your opinions on, say, deep dish pizza or how you should never toast a bagel, for instance? <laughs> no, it's not tough to stand up to them because, I, I mean... <laughs> I feel like I, I I do express strong opinions about things like that, but it's only because I've thought about them a lot, and I and I feel like I I can justify those opinions, and and I do think that most people are willing to get into like arguments with in in with a sort of positive outlook and and be willing to be convinced by evidence and strong arguments. You know, some sometimes people will just flat out say no, you're wrong, and and okay, and it's like at that point, then you say okay, and just like leave it. Other times, people really get into it, and then you can actually have sort of interesting debates about, you know, what's good and what's not. (laughs) Sure. Speaking of evidence and strong opinions, Mm -hmm. your book is over 900 pages of evidence and strong opinions. (laughs) Yeah. What do you see as the point of this work? The point of the book is not the recipes, but it's really, you know, I always saw the recipes more as sort of a jumping off point for teaching people the science and the technique behind them and and really how to apply that science and how to apply those techniques and that information uh, to other recipes. So, you know, the recipes are there. And if you if you jump to one and just want to cook it, um, they're going to work. Um, but but really, you know, I, 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 I expect and I want people to sort of read the book front to back, maybe not even cook from it as they're reading it. And hopefully by the time you're done reading it, then you sort of have like, the information that you need to make your own recipes and really start experimenting yourself in mm-hmm. the kitchen. You know, I always saw it as a as sort of a guidebook for either someone who's learning how to cook and wants to learn learn sort of the right way as opposed to just memorizing recipes um, mm-hmm. or someone who's been cooking their whole life. And, you know, sim- similar to the way uh, I came at, at, at food science, like been cooking for a long time, understood like how to cook, but didn't really know why I was doing things a certain way or yeah. whether that was really the best way to do things. And so, you know, the the, the book is, is a collection of, of all those thoughts I've had and all those questions that I've wanted to answer. Yeah, you say something um, along those lines. You say something really beautiful in your intro about how cooking is, is looked at as a craft rather than a science. Mm-hmm. And so you would be learning things but told not to ask questions because this is just the way it's done. Right, right. And and that's true in some cultures more than others. I mean, it's certainly true, I think, at least, and maybe this is changing now, but at the, at the time when I was working in restaurants, that is how it was done. You know, it was like you're, you have your chef and you listen to what they say and you do it the way they want you to do it. You could ask questions, but typically there wouldn't be time to answer the questions because, I mean, anybody who's worked in a restaurant kitchen knows it's just like a really high stress, yeah. fast paced environment. And your only job is to make sure that the food gets on the plate and goes out to the customer at the right time, and it's and it's done the way that the chef wants it. So yeah, so you don't you don't often get um, a chance to ask, to ask or answer those questions. Do you remember one of the first things that sort of irked you that you had a curiosity about and you didn't understand the why? 
one of the first things I questioned was was French fries and why they have that typical like double fry technique. Traditional French fries you cook by cooking once in relatively low temperature oil and then you cook them a second time just before you serve them. And so I was always told that the reason you do that is because you, you cook them slowly so that they cook all the way through and the potato softens all the way through and then you cook them quickly to crisp up the exterior. So yeah, I, I mean, I remember the, maybe a week after started after I started working in uh, a restaurant where we made fries, I was like, well, if, if the point of doing them the first time is just to cook them through, like, can we, why, like, why do we have to fry them? What, why couldn't we, like, boil them the first time? Or why couldn't we roast them in the oven the first time? And, uh, yeah, and I was, I was told that's, that's just not how it's done. And, and it turns out you can't, I mean, that, that isn't the exact reason why you cook fries twice. Um, I mean, the, the reason you want to cook them twice is you, you, you need to gelatinize the starch layers on the exterior. So the, mm-hmm. the thing that makes a, a French fry crispy is a layer of dehydrated, gelatinized starch. If you do it in water, it makes it more difficult to dehydrate it, obviously. Um, so, so that's the reason you cook twice. So, so you, you do it the first time, you gelatinize the starch, and then as the French fry sits and cools, some of the moisture starts to leave the surface. And then when you, when you fry it the second time, well, the, the starch recrystallizes and, and forms sort of like this glass-like structure on the outside. And then when you fry it the second time, you're driving off the moisture from it. Doing it the traditional way does work. I have an extremely complicated French fry technique um, that is actually not in this book, um, but you can find it online. My thoughts were, okay, well, if like our goal is to gelatinize as much starch as possible, and that's going to give you a thicker, crispier crust, I start my French fries first by boiling them, and I boil them in water with a little bit of vinegar in it. Um, and the reason is that pectin, which is the sort of um, the structural glue that holds plant cells together, pectin doesn't break down as readily in, in lower pH environments, so in acidic liquids, it, it won't break down as readily. So what that allows you to, you to do is kind of overboil the potatoes to the point where you've gelatinized the starch a whole lot. But because the pectin doesn't break down, the potatoes don't fall apart. They hold their shape very well. So you, you boil them in vinegar water and then you do the double fry process and you get like a sort of extra crispy crust on the outside, which I think is neat. It's, it's probably more work than most people are willing to do. But, but is it a better fry? <laughs> it is a better fry. It, yeah. it, it is. Yeah. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great in clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. We are going to walk through Kenji's meatloaf recipe in a second. Okay. But in Emily Weinstein's wonderful times mm-hmm. piece, she used this meatloaf to illustrate the point that the recipes can be long. Yes, they can be long. Yeah. We're going to make okay. this. Onion in, and then we're going to saute this whole mess of deliciousness. We're sauteing it. Mm-hmm. How do you feel? Are you sad? So sad about... Nothing. Are you sad about the Marmite? No. Be honest. I'm actually so excited to like try this recipe because I feel like there's a lot of mediocre meatloaf out there. I, you know, it's funny because I think that meatloaf is sort of mediocre by definition. But it could be so great. Like it's meat in bread form, with bread in it. Like why would why do you want that to be mediocre? And how did it evolve to be mediocre? Like, it should be so revered. Mm-hmm. We love meat. We love bread. 
So in a way, Kenji's doing a really powerful thing. If it all turns out. This recipe is eight pages before we get to the ingredient list. <laughs> right. Which is not a bad thing. Right. Um, and just, not uncommon in the book either. No, not even remotely. This is this is part for the course of this book. But I, So I wanted to walk through those eight pages. So okay. I think the thing that stuck out to me the most is that you take a super classic. I mean, meatloaf is like everybody makes it. Right. This right. is such an American food. Right. To the point where we have like meatloaf mix at the right. grocery uh-huh, store, uh-huh, which uh-huh. is a very prescribed three kinds of meat. Yeah, and beef, you take, pork, and veal. Yeah, right. and then almost the first thing you do is you take that and you, you debunk it. I mean, I wouldn't say debunk it, but yeah, I mean, I, I talk about what the point of each of those meats is in a meatloaf. That was pretty fun, actually. We, um, I made like a bunch of, I called them meatloaf varietals. So I, ma- I make like an all beef meatloaf, an all veal meatloaf, an all pork meatloaf, and sort of show what each of those elements does in a dish. Um, and if you look at the photos in the book, it's like, it's pretty it's pretty clear that there's a te- texturally a huge difference in 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 how those different meats behave. But by starting at that point, you sort of get to deconstruct the dish and figure out what what things are adding to it, maybe figure out ways to optimize what each of those things is adding to Mm -hmm. it. So yeah, in the recipe, I do end up tossing out the veal for for a number of reasons, primarily because veal doesn't add much flavor. Veal is a very, very mild meat, also because it's it's difficult to find for some people. And, you know, obviously, I think there are a lot of people who also feel like they don't want to eat veal. So that was one of the goals was like figure out a way to remove the veal and improve the recipe in the process. And you know, the main thing that veal brings to a meatloaf is uh, gelatin, because the younger an animal is, the more gelatin it has in its meat, um, and the more that gelatin is going to... Um well, it's actually collagen, and as the meatloaf cooks, the collagen converts to gelatin, um, and that gelatin creates this sort of protein net network that retains moisture. I mean, almost like the, the way like a sponge would, or, mm-hmm. or the way that like bread dough does. And so, veal. The only real thing is that it's adding to the mix is gelatin. Um, so, if you take that veal and replace it with beef, and then add a bit of powdered gelatin, you can get all of the sort of positive effects of veal while at the same time having more yeah. flavor. Why gelatin? It reads on page. 527. So at this point, we are letting the gelatin bloom in the chicken stock and the buttermilk. Um, And we are, we pulse the mushrooms and the bread together and they're going in the bowl. Um, So we have successfully crossed off two steps. How many steps are we tackling today? Let's see. Oh, just 10. Oh, just 10. It's so not bad. Okay. Okay, so breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs. People think that they're a filler, but no, not so. They're not. Yeah, no, they're they're well. I mean, they they are partially a filler, um, but really, what you're you're adding breadcrumbs for is is textural. So so if you take meat, ground meat, and you add salt to it, uh, the way that you do with a with a meatloaf, you season it, and then you kind of mix it up and massage it. It behaves very much in the same way that uh, again that bread dough does. You 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 end up uh, cross-linking proteins. So salt will dissolve some proteins in the meat. It makes them sort of unwind. And if you think of it as like. Um, little spools of like a wound up wire, the, the salt will cause, cause those spools to unwind a little bit. And then when you rub them together, they get tangled up with each other. And that's what sort of makes a sausage have a kind of snappy, springy, bouncy texture. And you don't really want a bouncy, springy meatloaf, right? You want it to be tender and like velvety. You don't, you don't want it to bounce when you drop it on the ground. So breadcrumbs, what they do is um, they are partially a filler, but really what, they, what they're doing is they're sort of physically impeding the meat proteins from interacting with each other very tightly. So Breadcrumbs are there basically to help keep a meatloaf tender. 
So you say that veal is another reason to not put veal in your in your meatloaf, aside from all the other reasons that you already cited, is that it's tough to find. But you have Marmite in yours. <laughs> I do have Marmite. And yeah, Marmite is one of those ingredients. I call them like umami grenades or umami bombs. Grenades. Marmite. Grenades, yeah. <laughs> Marmite, soy sauce, fish sauce, anchovies. Um, you see those four ingredients pop up in the book a lot, basically in any kind of sort of ground meat or meat stew or soup soup recipe. And the reason I add those is because they're really highly concentrated sources of glutamic acid. So in the same way that like sodium chloride trigger, triggers your sense of saltiness or fructose or glucose or sucrose triggers your sense of sweetness, glutamic acid triggers your sense of savoriness. Um, and so I use it in the same way that I would use salt in a recipe because um, I want to make sure that the savoriness in a recipe is also sort of optimized and balanced. So Marmite is not an easy ingredient to just walk into a supermarket and find, but it's also used in very, very small quantities. So you can order a jar of it off the internet or find one jar of it and it's going to last forever um, and and you can keep it in your pantry at room temperature. So put it on your toast in the morning. You can put it on your, t- if you're British, you can put it on your toast in the yeah. morning if you want. It's all, you know, I, I think I also try and make it clear that um, even though this specific recipe calls for Marmite, it's serving a very similar function to other ingredients like, like soy sauce and anchovies or fish sauce. So you can easily replace it with one of those. Walk me through the baking process because first you, so it's, it's, it's obviously unconventional, and I want to know why it's better to do it this way than to just pack it in a <laughs> loaf pan and turn your oven on. Transfer the mixture to a 9 by 5 inch loaf pan, being sure that no air bubbles get trapped underneath. <laughs> the moment when I'm happy. This is now videotaped. Tear off a sheet of heavy-duty aluminum foil large enough to line a rimmed baking sheet and use it to tightly cover the meatloaf, crimping it around the edges of the pan. Refrigerate the meatloaf while the oven preheats. So typically there, there are two ways that people will make meatloaf. Um, one of them is the is the loaf pan method. So you, you pack your meat into a loaf pan and you throw it in the oven and you bake it just like you're bre- baking like a Pullman loaf or like a zucchini mm-hmm. bread. Yep. Um, I, I had problems with this me- with that method. Um, so I, I used to cook dinner at a um, at a fraternity house um, nightly. Um, and so I made meatloaf pretty frequently there. <laughs> um and uh, and I would use the loaf pan method. And, you know, anybody who's ever made meatloaf in a loaf pan, you know, like it comes out of the oven looking pretty ugly, pretty gnarly because um, the juices and the fat from the meatloaf leak out and then it shrinks a little bit. So you end up with this kind of like hot tub of like coagulated meat juice that your that your <laughs> so meat, meatloaf is kind of floating around in and then you have to fish it out and like clean off all like the the gunk um, and it's just not that pretty you don't have to like clean your dinner after it's done cooking right you don't want to have to yeah. um, so um, it's not that pretty um, the other method people use is the free form loaf method so they'll they'll just kind of pack it in like you're making a sandcastle out of meat um, and you <laughs> I'm loving these similes <laughs> um, and you bake it that way um, and and that method um, has some major advantages. Like first of all, like the juices that leak out kind of spread around the tray, and instead of so instead of engulfing the meatloaf, they spread away. Um, it also gives you more surface area uh, for browning, which I think is important in a meatloaf. Um, the problem with it, and the problem particularly um, in the recipe in the recipe in the book, is if you try and um, if you try and add enough moisture to your meatloaf that it comes out sort of super velvety and moist the way I want it to be, um, mm-hmm. you end up with a mix that's very, very loose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you try and form it into a loaf, uh, free form, it kind of spreads out and you end up with like really flat, uh, not very pretty pieces. And um, they, they taste fine, but like you can't, you can't, for instance, for instance, use them to make like a make like a meatloaf sandwich. Sure. And I think that's like one of the key elements of it's meatloaf. Like half of the point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, the the technique I use, I'm trying to I'm trying to sort of bridge that gap between those two things. So um, I start by um, packing the meatloaf into a loaf pan, uh, wrapping the whole thing with heavy duty aluminum foil. And then 
then what happens is you unwrap the foil around the bread pan. Spread the foil out. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and um, I'm sorry, and you bake it upside down. So the loaf pan is actually upside down over the meatloaf. It does kind of look like it did a face plant. <clears throat> It looks like what what's in there. Like it's a little mysterious. Like I feel like maybe we just trapped a rat. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I think of it more as like when you had those um, the, the the brick molds that you used to make sandcastles. You know. <laughs> sure. Um, so you, you take your meat, you pack it in, uh, you you put it upside down on a tray, you bake it just until uh, it holds its shape, um, and then uh, you take it out and lift off the loaf. It says pan. use a thin metal spatula to lift an edge of the inverted loaf pan, jiggling it until it slides off the meatloaf easily, and you Use oven mitts or a folded kitchen towel to remove the pan, leaving the meatloaf on the center of the foil. So let's do that part. Are you scared? How do you feel? Um, so now you have like a meatloaf that's perfectly loaf shaped, but you have all that surface area for browning at the end. So I think it kind of, it gets you the best of both worlds. It's sort of like a, like a meat grand canyon. The meatloaf is out of the oven and something bad happens to it. It's no longer the perfect shape we were so excited about. Like it caved in the middle, there's, and there's like a big cavity in the middle now. And it doesn't it doesn't let go of all of its juices then. Just like when you're doing it free form, it's gonna it, it is gonna spread juices around the panel. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are gonna lose some juices. Um, the the uh, the gelatin and the uh, the breadcrumbs and the eggs uh, help retain some of those juices. But yeah, you you inevitably you're gonna lose some of that juiciness. Mm -hmm. And then you glaze it. And then I glaze it. Yeah, pretty straightforward, simple <laughs> ketchup and brown sugar, I think, or vinegar vinegar yeah. ketchup brown yeah, sugar. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty standard. There's nothing like really that food lab about this glaze. But you you glaze it you glaze it a couple of times. Are you going to glaze the canyon? Should I get in there? I think, I think, yeah, right? I mean, it's become a layer now, so it's become the crust. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a crater lake. <laughs> Sorry, Kenji, we made a geological formation out of your meatloaf. Similar to how I would do, like, barbecue sauce on a rack of ribs. You know, you, right. you I think of the glaze sort of as, like, you want to do, like, a layer of primer first, and then you yes. um, let that kind of set, and then you add another layer and another. Yeah, it's like it's like you're paint, painting your living room. You want to do three, at least three coats. Yes. <laughs> so can we eat it immediately after, or do we have to wait? We have to wait 15 minutes. So it's like a, should we just do a test and see if we don't have to wait 15 minutes? Like, so, all right, meatloaf expedition, it's over. How do you feel? I just want to eat it. We started this expedition on a Wednesday at 5 p.m. Along the way, we learned lessons in umami, diligently bloomed gelatin, and went against our better judgment and what we were taught by baking the whole thing upside down, even if it did call to mind some kind of deranged meat sandcastle. Two days later, it was finally done. So maybe we didn't need to let it rest for a day and a half in the fridge, but during that time, we never lost sight of that meatloaf. We thought about that meatloaf, we dreamed about it. For 48 long hours, it was our white whale. So how did it turn out? That tastes very good. I'm sold. It is so good. I just want to eat it. It is so good. <laughs> oh my god. It's so good. Holy shit. I want to take a picture of this before we slice it. But by this point, we had an emotional attachment to this lovingly crafted thing. We were too close to the process. We needed an unbiased focus group. We assumed Kenji would be glad we were keeping at least one eye on science. Can you tell us what's in it, or then you have to kill us? Oh. There are roughly 25 ingredients. Is this Kenji? Yes. Do you know, I just guessed that. Oh, just because it was, <laughs> it was a long recipe. <laughs> 
This recipe is It's well, it's like a real, <laughs> it's like a really, really juicy hamburger, but with a ton more flavor packed the into it. The more I hear about the process, the madder I am. <laughs> <laughs> Those are fighting words. <laughs> to be fair, while we did most things by the book, there were times our test probably wasn't quite as accurate as it could have been. Because we don't have measuring spoons in the kitchen. Wait, you're not allowed to say that. Does this make our test just inconclusive? We're only on step three. Oh, God. We've already done three things, not by the book. Then again, that's the charm of Kenji's recipes. They're nearly encyclopedic, but once you learn them, even the most intensive recipe is game for a little tinkering. For him, it's about teaching. Once you know how he got to where he ended up, you know enough to make a left turn, if that's what you want to do. It's not what you'd expect from a 900-plus page book. It's going to be like more of a mountain to scale. You sound upset about that. Like, I kind of wanted some, like, antics or, like, something crazy to happen. But don't you find that comforting? Like, I feel like Kenji is one of the most trusted voices in food and knowing that you can actually create his food. Yeah, but damn it. There's something, there's a little part of me that wanted to be like, I don't need eight pages to make a meatloaf. Maybe we still don't need eight pages every time we want to make a meatloaf. But some of his gospel is staying with us. Oh, I believe, I believe in the holy trinity of the umami grenade. But now I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like very well-rounded meatloaf. Yeah, we're believers. Kenji's book, The Food Lab, is out now. I call them like umami grenades or umami bombs. And that's it for this episode of Burnt Toasts. Our producer is Tim Einenkel, and thanks also to Laura Mayer, Henry Malofsky, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter address is at food52, and you can email us at editors at food52.com. If you like the show, tell everyone you know, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you have feelings about meatloaf or about the food lab, we want to know about them. So tweet them and hashtag them with F52Podcast. For Kenji Lopez-Alt, I'm Kenzie Wilbur. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Do you think it's too big of a variable that we're making this in a kitchen that has a food processor that doesn't work? I am hoping for an hour, but somehow I feel like every time I've told people I'm making meatloaf today, they're going to be like, oh, so it's going to be four hours.